Hello and welcome to Fire Away, Rudner Law's online show focused on the employment law issues that matter to you. My name is Stuart Rudner and I'm an employment lawyer and mediator and your host of this season three, episode four or COVID-19 episode three episode of Fire Away. Just a reminder that Fire Away streams live online every month and episodes are always available on our YouTube channel, on our Facebook page, on LinkedIn, and of course on our website. If you're watching live and have any questions, we'd be happy to answer them. So feel free to post them by posting comments on Facebook or YouTube, or you can always tweet them to at Law. For today's episode, we have two guests. I'm very excited to be joined, first of all, by Carola Mittag, president of the Workplace Safety Group, and second of all, by Dr. Deborah Nixon, vice president of Mandrake. This is, as I mentioned, the third episode that we're doing, which is focused on workplace issues related to COVID-19. And I still remember the March episode when we very hastily changed the topic at the very last minute, just as it seemed like this might become a very significant issue. And I remember a good part of that show has been talking about how to handle things like employee travel. Uh, that became a non-issue very quickly. And then the issue has turned to things like layoffs and pay cuts and the government assistance that's available. Since then, over the last eight or nine weeks, Rudner Law has done dozens of webinars and Q&A sessions and other online sessions. Uh, I actually joined Deborah in her LinkedIn group a few weeks ago and I'm joining them again on Thursday. Um, we've also put out hundreds of pieces of information by social media, as well as on our running blog, which talks about all things COVID-19 workplace related. And of course, we've worked with count countless clients to help them understand their rights and their obligations during these unprecedented times. I'm very happy that the conversation is changing. We're not getting as many questions about layoffs and pay cuts anymore. We're focusing on recalls. And today, that is our focus. We're talking about getting back, not quite back to normal, but getting back to business, how you bring employees back, and the health and safety issues that are going to arise or are arising as you get back to business. I'm very happy to have both Deborah and Corolla here with me. And uh, I'll start off with you, Corolla. Why don't you tell us a little, little bit about uh, the types of issues that you're dealing with now or the types of questions that you're getting as people are starting, starting to prepare for getting back to business. Thanks, Stuart. Nice to be here on the show with you. Interesting times for sure. I read something the other day where it says predict the unpredictable. Well, these times are certainly unpredictable. Uh, Companies, employers are very, very stressed about how they're going to bring their employees back, how they're going to keep them safe, what they're going to do with their workplaces to keep the employees safe. It's a whole long conversation, I'm sure. Uh, you'll have some questions and hopefully I'll have some answers for you. <laughs> I have no doubt that you'll have some answers for me. Uh, Deborah. what about you? What kind of issues and questions are, are you getting as we've sort of seem to be shifting more to a back to business phase? Well, um, you know, the, the biggest thing, of course, is the whole issue around uh, employee fear and concern about coming back. Um, you know, employees worried about will they be safe at work? What are the policies and processes that are in place with the return to work? So this is the thing that the HR community is really focused on right now. Yeah, I'm not, not at all surprised to hear that. Uh, and it's been interesting. We've been trying to remind our employer clients and assure our employee clients that employers generally have that duty to take all reasonable steps or all reasonable precautions to ensure a, work, a safe work environment. And of course, 
we used to talk about loose floorboards and then we talked a lot about harassment in the workplace and never did really, really imagine a situation like the one we're in. Um, but that's what everyone's got to focus on is making sure that, you know, as the restrictions are being loosened, as people are going back to work, they've got to be reassured, as you said, Deborah, that, that it's going to be safe. Um, so maybe we can talk first about some best practices. So Carola, if you want to start, what are, what are, some, what are some of the best practices that you are advising clients with respect to making sure the workplace is safe? Well, best practices would include making sure that there are policies in place that the employer realizes that he has to create policies now for the unpredictable, you know, for the unseen, for the uh, the hazard that this COVID is is uh, creating for workers, and uh, how how he's going to address that. You know, what what does he have to put into his policies? What kind of policies does he have to write? What does he have to put into them? Um, it doesn't just apply to the workers, it applies to visitors that come into the workplace. It applies to the physical workplace. It applies to uh, clients that might come into the workplace. It's, uh, it's such an insidious issue right now, this COVID virus. It's so insidious that people really don't know how to address it. Well, I think that's the challenge. And the good thing is that uh, the medical authorities, the governments, particularly the government of Ontario, released a very lengthy guideline to maintaining safety in the workplace, and they've divided it for different types of workplaces. There are a lot of resources available online, but uh, Deborah, what would you add to that in terms of some of the best practices that you're recommending? Yeah, you know, some of the things that uh, while we're all focused on what goes on in the workplace, one of the biggest issues is how to get to the workplace. And so there are a lot of conversations about um, those employees that have to commute. So do we want people on transit? If we don't want them on transit, how can we uh, get people to the workplace. The other thing is talking about that phased approach. Um, are, you know, returning people who absolutely need to be in the workplace at the beginning and allowing the rest of the staff to continue to work from home. I mean, chances are that um, parents are still going to have to be looking after kids through the summer. So it's not really going to be that feasible for all these people to return to work. So there are a lot of considerations still. Yeah, and I think that's a really, well, a few really important points, actually, but one of the ones you mentioned, the fear of getting to and from work is something that we're getting a lot of questions on. I mean, I've had a lot of, you know, I've had a lot of people say to me, well, do I have to go back to work? So that's one of the starting questions is people don't necessarily want to go back to work. And one of the points that we're making uh, to anyone who will listen is that it's not an option, you know, right? You know, it's no different than if you're working day in and day out, you can't decide on Wednesday after working Monday and Tuesday that you're just not gonna to go to work today. And that's no different if you've been on a layoff either officially or unofficially, and now your employer says you have to come back to work. You have to come back to work with some limitations, obviously, and, and I don't wanna to go too far down this road now, but uh, if you're entitled to a statutorily protected leave, so you mentioned childcare. In Ontario, we have the COVID-19 workplace leaves, which we could apply. You also have entitlement to accommodation if you have child care obligations or if you have a medical condition or if you're immunocompromised and you're at a higher risk, you may not be able to return. So you may be entitled to accommodation or if there's an unsafe workplace. And I think maybe we'll, we'll come back to what you do if you feel that your workplace is unsafe. Uh, but 
I have had a lot of people say to me, I've got employees who just, they don't want to come back to work. Mm -hmm. And sometimes the reason is the only way they can get to work is public transportation. They're scared of that. Have, have you guys been, been handling that situation as well? At my end, no, I can't say that I have. Uh, it's more, they're willing, they're wanting to go back to work, but again, looking at the conditions at the workplace, you know, what's available to me to keep me safe? You know, is there PPE that I can use? Uh, what is the uh, sanitation situation in the workplace? Those are things that people that I've been dealing with have been questioning. No, so, fair enough. And Deborah, what about you? Have you had this question? There are a number of employers who are looking at different strategies. In some cases, uh, right now anyway, with people that have to go in, they're providing Uber. So everybody's masked. The other thing employers are doing is uh, compensating employees who would carpool. So if you would typically take transit, three of you get together, you carpool, the, the employer may pick up the cost of parking or other parking spaces available. So employers are really looking at some of these creative options. Okay. Uh, that's interesting to hear. And I guess carpool raises other health and safety issues, but you're always weighing the risks. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's interesting because, you know, from a legal pers perspective, of course, being unable to get to work is not an excuse for missing work. So at the end of the day, the onus is going to fall on the employee. But I, Deborah, I think, you know, you're, what you're saying is consistent with what we've seen, which is there is a real sense of community. There is a sense of people are trying to work together to figure out solutions and, and Uber or carpooling uh, are certainly two of them. I also want to come back to a point you made, Deborah, which does fit into this somewhat. Very few businesses are going to be able to go from zero to 100 uh overnight you know, you're not going to bring back everyone so as you said consider how many employees you actually need you need a full complement or a reduced number also we've been telling our clients you know, to consider the workplace and if you are going to try to maintain physical distancing you may not be able to accommodate everyone so again that might limit your numbers but as well the ideal still is remote work so if you have people that can work remotely they should but the people who need to come back to work will and then like you said it's a staged return as opposed to an overnight uh, all or nothing type of thing and part of that is assessing the uh the risks um so maybe i'll turn back to you corolla um i'm curious i know we've seen a lot of stores grocery stores they've had the dividers up the barriers the lines on the on the floor um but have you been working with with some of your clients in order to, to ensure that distancing is maintained as much as much as possible well, we deal a lot with the manufacturing industry and with the construction industry as well, which is different from retail, very, very different from retail or from healthcare, of course, too. Uh, in the manufacturing, uh, I'm not sure how careful some of the workers are, right. you know, and how how careful they can be because of the type of work that they're doing. So. Um, it's interesting you said that because I know like I've spoken with some of our clients who are also in manufacturing or warehouse type facilities uh, and they are trying as much as possible to ensure physical distancing as much as they can. And then, you know, it, it's a hierarchy, right? You've got your remote work, you've got your physical distancing, and you've got things like personal protective equipment. So some of our clients are trying, you know, they rearrange the workplace. They've moved work, uh, you know, workbenches so people are further apart recognizing that at some point you're going to have to go and talk to your colleague, you might have to talk to a customer, and that's when a mask or other things like that come in. But it's uh, there is no one size that fits all or no one solution. 
No. Um, I think one of the important things too is that it's really critical for senior leadership to kind of constantly communicate with the employees. So, you know, part of the issue is to build that whole notion of psychological safety into the workplace so that if you want your employees to come back, you want them to feel safe, it's super important for you to be talking to them about what you're thinking about, what you're planning, what the contingencies are. That, that is very critical. Yeah, and I, I, also, I'm also, oh, sorry, go ahead. You also have to be cognizant that because of the fear that people have, they could possibly become a little short-tempered, maybe even, um, I don't want to go so far as to say violent, but it might be something that could escalate in the workplace more so now than it did previously. No, so that's something, the, the psychological factor is huge. That's a great point, Carla. I see we have a question. So th thanks, Rob, for holding that up. Uh, so the question is, can you mandate that masks be worn? Uh, I'll comment really quickly, but I don't want to hear from you guys. But uh, you know, what we're telling our clients is you've got to take you know, the time to assess the risks in your particular workplace. And it might be multiple workplaces because you might have a, an office area, you might have a manufacturing area, you might have a client-facing area. They're all different. Um, but our view is that, again, you have this duty to maintain a safe workplace. So there will be situations where mandate, sorry, mandating the use of specific equipment would be appropriate. Uh, but I'd love to hear what are each of you, maybe Deborah, do you wanna go first? So we've had lots of, you know, I deal with a lot of corporate settings. And so there's mixed uh, views. The primary view is not the mandating route. So again, back to communicating and, and connecting with employees about what exactly is it that they're concerned about and meeting those needs as opposed to mandating um, things like wearing masks. It's going to be hard, you know, because you're going to turn your workplace then into a, uh, into a compliance oriented workplace where you have to people monitor, you know, and that may not be conducive to, you know, the working together that people are trying the team spirit. Yeah, on the other point. hand, I'm oh, sorry, go ahead, Carla. On the other hand, if you're writing policies in relation to the, the COVID situation now, and the policy says that your mask becomes part of your PPE, it's mandated in the workplace, that's the law of the workplace. Right? Yeah, that's uh, along lines of what I was going to say. And, and look, it's got to be reasonable. And look, a lot of my time is spent reviewing just cause cases when I update my book on unjust cause for dismissal. And it's interesting, you know, long before the whole COVID-19 era, uh, a lot of the cases that I see every year, oh, thanks, Rob, I will, uh, we'll get back to that question in a second. A lot of the cases that we're seeing uh, relating to breach of policy relate specifically to breach of safety policies. And judges are far more uh, willing to allow a company to enforce safety policies than other policies. But it's got to be reasonable. And that's one of the key things is, you know, if you say to an employee, if you don't follow this policy, you're going to be disciplined and the employee pushes back, you're going to have to justify that it's a reasonable policy. So, you know, you can't just, you know, I've, and I've had some people say, well, we're just going to make sure, everyone, make sure everyone wears masks. That's not the answer. You've got to do the risk assessment. But if your assessment is that that is a, an important way to maintain safety, then I, I'm a believer in that. And I think, Deborah, your point is good. Communication is the most important part. And I've been telling our clients, if you're going to recall workers, this is a great opportunity. You don't just have to call them and say, we want you back to work tomorrow. Take the time to put something in writing. First of all, explain, of course, that they are expected to return to work. But you can also take the opportunity to reassure them. Then let it lay out all the efforts that you are making 
to ensure the workplace is safe. And at the same time, you can also give them an indication of what the expectations are, that you do want them to ensure distancing or, or use of protect, protective equipment, et cetera. Uh, but it's a great opportunity to communicate that. Uh, one question, oh, actually, sorry, we had a question. Rob, could you hold that up again? Are human rights issues involved with this mandate? Yeah, thank you for the, the question. Human rights issues, I, I'm thinking aloud here because if, if the mandate we're talking about is you have to wear a mask, I'm not sure where the human rights issues would fall, um, but maybe someone smarter than I am can, can explain to me where the issue would arise. But we have lots of cases where we have this analysis where there's a, a basically a conflict of rights. You have a right to a safe workplace. You have a right to uh, some you know, of a human right. Which one takes priority? And generally speaking, safety gets a lot of latitude. Same thing with privacy rights. Uh, and I, I want to come to testing in a minute because a lot of businesses, as we know, are making employees have their temperature taken before they come into the workplace. And the question is, isn't that a breach of their privacy rights? And the, and the answer is yes, but it may well be justifiable in light of the safety needs. Uh, I'm curious to know if either of you guys have had to deal with the issue of either temperature taking or any other sort of testing. I haven't come across it yet. I haven't come uh, one uh, one company I know here in Niagara who does safety training outside of uh, one of uh, my colleagues, I guess. He did take temperatures when he was doing a training. Apparently, he took temperatures of the people coming into the training class. But then he put that aside and quit and is not doing any safety training at the moment at all. So other than that, I haven't come across it. It's a big uh, debate uh, among HR leaders about the testing. So there are some organizations that, that are doing the temperature taking and what they're trying to ensure is that they get the right people taking those temperatures. So people that are well-trained. Um, you know, there's a split decision based on the signs of whether, you know, temperature taking is, is really the route to go. Um, because your temperature is only as good as the day you take it, right? And we all know that people can mask their temperature. So we're not sure in the community whether that's actually a measure that's useful. No, I think that's a, there's two important points I've heard. One is the one you said, Deborah, which is it may not be reliable. And two is it's, it's a breach of someone's privacy. Um, so that's going to be, that's going to factor into the discussion again, whether it's a breach of human rights or a breach of privacy rights we're talking about, can you justify this imposition of a test, which will be infringing your, uh, your privacy rights? Um, and I just want to shift bases. We've got, I'm not surprised we're getting a lot of questions today. Um, but Rob, maybe if you could hold that one up quickly again for me. So the question we got on Facebook, my biggest concern is employees not wanting to return to work. What rights do I have as an employer? Uh, thank you for the question and for the segue, because I did want to use some of our remaining time to talk about return to work and recall to work. Um, so as I was saying before, you know, the, the default here is that if you are, if you're told you have to attend at work during regular working hours, that's not an option. You are expected to return to work. Uh, and there are limited exceptions. If there is a statutorily protected leave, for example, in Ontario, if you have to look after kids or if you have been ordered to self-isolate, uh, you may have a human rights accommodation need. If you, again, if you have childcare obligations, if you are, are immunocompromised, uh, or if, and I wanna come back to this, if you feel that the workplace is unsafe, but unless one of those exceptions applies, 
an individual has to come back to work. And if they don't, and we've talked to a lot of our employer clients about this, you can you should warn them and you should communicate with, it, with them. But part of that communication is that if they don't return to work, they're going to be deemed to have abandoned their job. They're effectively resigning. And they need to understand that. And again, Deborah, to your point, that's where communication is, is critical. Um, so just on that point, I want to talk about the right to refuse unsafe work. And, uh, you know, that's, that I think is going to be a big question because a lot of people have asked us, you know, can I just say I'm not, not comfortable going to the workplace? Um, and our answer is no, you need to have a specific concern. Uh, but I'll ask me, me, Deborah, first, if you've been handling that issue as well. Yeah, so we're getting that question a lot. And, and, and again, it's, it's the perception of not being safe. So that's where we come back to have a plan, lay it out, talk to your employees, talk to them again and talk to them again. Can't emphasize that enough. Yeah, I think that's, that's a great approach. And Corolla, any, have you had to deal with this issue? I have had one client contact me and say, I have a worker who doesn't want to come back to work because he does not feel safe. You know, how it was dealt with in the end, I'm really not sure how it ended up, but uh, that was one client, one example. Right, and you know, it does, it does bring up a point that I often make, which is there's the legal and the practical. So legally, you could take a very aggressive approach and say, if you're not back to work tomorrow, then you're gonna to be deemed to have abandoned your job. But what we're telling our clients is, look, you need to reach out, talk to them, find out what the concerns are. And you know, you may be able, to address those concerns and reassure the employee and Deborah, like you were saying, reassure them with, with the, about the efforts that are being made. Or they might say, well, I can't come back to work because my kids are at home and I need someone and to look after them. So there may be a valid excuse. Um, but otherwise, if not, you know, we talked about the right to refuse unsafe work, which of course is a right enshrined in occupational health and safety legislation. Um, but it's only if there is a specific danger. And we've had a few people already who have called us and asked what to do and we've coached them through the process which always starts with talk to your employer they may have a health and safety committee or hr or whoever the person is tell them what your concerns are and then they have an obligation to investigate uh, and hopefully address your concern if they don't you can always go to the ministry of labor um, but uh, deborah to your point a lot of this comes down to communication well, well, I think, you know, it's, it's about building trust between employers and employees. And when it gets to the point where they're refusing, that usually cues me that somehow there's been a breakdown in the communication all along through the whole COVID <laughs> crisis. And so employees are not feeling confident. So if employers haven't been communicating a lot before, this is the time to fix that. And the other point too, is what I've been saying that, you know, find out why they don't want to come back to work. They may not have a legitimate reason. It may just be a generalized fear of, of you know, going out in public now, which is certainly understandable. Uh, but as I was saying before, you may not need them back. You may not need all of your employees. So it actually can be a win-win. And I've seen this a few times now where you know, an employer only needs 80% of their workforce back and you've got a good 15 or 20% who don't want to come back. It can actually work out quite well if it's someone you don't need and they can just remain on layoff. So. Communication, you might find out that, that you both have an interest in not having them come back to work just yet. Well, what we're saying is this is the big reset. And what we're, what we're seeing is a big push from employees to continue remote work. So I think that in the coming months, we're going to see quite a change in terms of who's coming back and who isn't and people wanting to be able to, to work virtually at least a few days a week. 
Yeah, and no, I think you're absolutely right. And I'm actually quite excited to see that we're gonna see a lot more virtual work. Uh, but one question I am getting a lot of is can an employee insist that they're not coming into the workplace that they're gonna work remotely? Uh, and my answer has been no, I mean, legally they don't have the right to, but there is certainly still a preference that if people can do their job from home, they should be doing it. So we're certainly encouraging our employer clients to allow it if the work can be done. The interesting thing, and this is more a question for Corolla, I was on the phone with a coaching client this morning who was complaining about physical pain, right? From not having the right equipment, bad chair, bad table. Hmm. And so there's that whole issue again of what's the employer obligation in working from home to provide employees with the right uh, equipment. Well, that goes back to risk assessment or hazard assessment too. If the employee is complaining about poor posture or pain from poor, uh, poorly situated equipment, then maybe they have to do a workplace assessment for ergonomic issues. So again, that's part of the hazard assessment or risk assessment of the particular job that that, that employee is, is asked to do. Yeah, and it's amazing how many businesses, you know, all of their desks, all of their workstations are, you know, ergonomically set up as best as they possibly can be. But then someone's working from home two or three days a week and they're sitting on a fold up chair at the dining room table. <laughs> uh, so you're right, you know, as we're going to see more remote work, which we obviously are, we're going to have to turn our minds to that issue as well. It's a whole other area of communication, but another also potential area of liability that you need to be aware of. Uh, and it also reminds yeah. That's the question is, what's the employer's obligation there? Yeah, which is, and there, I've seen some debate about this. I mean, generally speaking, you know, the, the rule typically was that, you know, if someone's working from home, that's not part of the employer responsibility to ensure a safe workplace. Um, but there's also the practical element of if you want your people to work, you're going to need to make sure that they are safe and physically able to do the work, not sitting there with a, a sore back and getting headaches and everything else. Uh, so there's a practical need to deal with it. You know, and the other point I've been making to a lot of clients recently is, you know, now's the chance to update your policies. Uh, particularly if things have slowed down, you may have time. And I know a lot of our clients, so they've been saying they're going to do a policy update for years, but they never have a chance. Now they might actually have some time and think about your health and safety policies. Think about your remote work policies. Think about your remote work equipment and what you do to set people up at home because you know, you're, you're going to be dealing with these issues more and more as you go forward. It's yes. interesting that you say that, Stuart, because that's where the most inquiries have come from right now. P clients wanting help with their policies. As, as Deborah was saying, reset, doing a reset at this point. We have been contacted by quite a number of employees, employers rather, who want to have their policies either written because they have nothing <laughs> or updated. So it's actually been very interesting in that respect. And we've been very grateful for that opportunity to help them with their policies. And Carola, I'm sure that you're getting uh, a lot of requests for policies that people wouldn't have thought about before. Policies right. about remote work, policies about combined work, not remote. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I'm glad yeah. to hear you say that, Carola, because that's, you know, I've always been pushing people to keep their policies up to date, but I'm glad people are taking yeah. the opportunity. So. Rob, thank you for reminding me that, uh, as I always say, the time flies by quickly. So uh, rather than me doing uh, a bit of a rant at the end, I, I would like to offer both of you the chance to give me your, your top tip as we, like I said before, we're not necessarily going back to normal, but back to business. So 
each of your top tips for people as they do? I'll start. So, you know, as I've been saying, my top tip is for employers to speak to your employees. If you're not sure what their concerns are, why not just survey them? Ask them what's on their mind and what their priorities are and then stay in touch with them. Cool. I like that. Carola, what about you? And I would say to employers to continue monitoring the workplace, evaluating the workplace, always looking for ways to find uh, methodologies, methods to keep the workers safe, uh, applying appropriate controls, whether it's physical distancing, changing of sanitation and, and cleaning habits in the workplace, or um, encouraging better hygiene for the workers themselves too. You know, and as I agree with Deborah, it's all about communication between the employers and the employees, for sure. That's most important. Great, thank you. So that is all the time we have for season three, episode four of Fire Away. So I want to thank everyone for tuning in and, and a particular thanks to Deborah and Carola for joining the show today. The interesting thing is that the issues that we've seen over the last two months are unprecedented. And in my 21 years of practice, I've never really seen anything like this. Uh, but the concern is actually no different than what it always is, which is that people are still making decisions and they're not taking into account the legal implications of their actions. They're not taking into account their legal rights and their obligations, and basically failing to treat the employment relationship as a legal one, which gets people into trouble and also costs them money. And I'm talking about employers and employees. And our approach at Runner Laws, we're not looking to encourage disputes. We just wanna make sure people are making informed decisions. On that note, I'm gonna encourage everyone to stay informed, I invite you to keep up to date by following our, our running blog at runnerlaw.ca as well as our social media feeds and, of course, signing up for our newsletter to get um, employment law updates in your inbox. But most importantly, as I say every month, if you're not sure of your rights and obligations, especially in these unprecedented times, feel free to reach out to us. If you think you might need an employment lawyer, you probably do. Our next episode is going to air on Tuesday, June 19th. Hopefully by then we can talk about something other than COVID-19, but We'll see what happens. Past episodes are available on YouTube, on Facebook, on LinkedIn, and our, on our website. And I just want to thank Rob, Rebecca, and Mark, as always, for helping this to go off smoothly. Take care, stay safe, and stay informed. Thank you.